You know what? I remember the Berlin Wall because it was a big thing at school and we were watching the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'd been traveling to Germany also with my parents and I remember we were somewhere in Germany and, you know, it was the time when the TV, you know, you had a TV and it had the antennas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then sometimes you could catch, you know, these other channels. And I remember we caught a channel from East Germany and it was in black and white. <gasps> and, I, and I remember I was like, why is it black and white? <laughs> <laughs> this was in, like in the 80s, you mm-hmm. know. I think Russia back then had barely any channels, maybe like two or three. I do remember going to my grandmother's countryside and we had only two TV channels. Mm-hmm. One was in black and white. One was partially in color <laughs> when the signal was right or something yeah. like that. So it was yeah. very weird. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, we did only have one channel actually in Denmark in my my entire childhood. Oh, really? And then, you you know, you, if you were kind of like fidgeting, depending on where in Denmark you <laughs> lived. So I lived close to Sweden, so we could get the two Swedish channels. Oh, my God. If you were close to Germany, you could get the three German channels. Wow. So I can't speak any German, but I can understand Swedish. <laughs> Hi, friends. You've just heard an excerpt from our casual conversation with today's guest, Louise Gold-Taylor, an incredibly intellectual woman of many professions. I met Louise during the municipal elections here in Montreal in 2021 when she was running for a city councillor. Louise and her volunteers simply knocked on my door and after a short conversation I decided to join her campaign. Unfortunately, soon I was hit by a car while biking, which slowed me down for a couple of months and allowed me to start this project. So, after a long winter apart, it was very nice to catch up with Louise and reflect on her life before and after the elections. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please welcome. My name is Louise Cole-Taylor. I live in Montreal and I'm originally from Denmark. I moved to Montreal in 2009, so I've lived here. What is that? 13 years. My favorite number. Yeah. You know, I have a husband who's from Montreal, and I have uh, two uh, teenage kids. One has actually moved away from home. He's now spending his second year in Denmark. Oh, back to the roots. <laughs> back to the roots, exactly. And my uh, youngest, my daughter, is actually moving there um, this summer as well. So wow. uh, we will become empty nesters <sighs> by the summer. And so besides that, I have a background as an engineer. It's been a while since I've worked in that field. I've done lots of things uh, since then. I've worked as a math teacher. I've done a lot of community organizing. I have worked in organizational development. I am certified as a coach and a facilitator. And latest in 2021, the, the, the municipal election that just took place in Montreal, I was actually running as a city councilor in my local district. I didn't win, though. Um, but yeah, that's that's just sort of in a nutshell, a little bit about me. Wow, it's just fascinating to speak to a person with so many different skills and roles too. I'm curious how you found yourself there. What was your the story of your evolution? Sometimes maybe you just made like a decision or someone told you like, hey, you should do that. Or was it just going with the stream of a river? <laughs> uh, I think I, it was just... Uh, sort of knocking my forehead <laughs> up a lot, in a lot of against a lot of walls like bang okay new direction bang 
being gifted in math and physics and and especially in that I don't know if it's like that today I think it is like that today but at the time and the place I grew up those were seen as as skills that were too good to waste and I'm kind of putting little quotation marks and they were too good to waste so if you had a talent in physics and math you definitely had to pursue it like it, nobody asked me if I had other hobbies or interests or, you know, if there was something else I was passionate about. Like, it didn't matter. So that's made me an engineer. Mm-hmm. And I and I sort of pursued that for some years and I actually ended up in a PhD program uh, studying nonlinear ultrasound imaging. Wow. Remy, did you hear it? <laughs> ultrasound? Nonlinear ultrasound imaging. Wow. It's like when you send sound uh, through tissue... And then you're measuring the reflections that come back. Sometimes what happens is that higher harmonics will form through that. And then you can actually make images from those higher harmonics. They give different image quality and, um, yeah, different properties. So that was an industrial PhD. Mm. So meaning I was actually hired by a company and I was in collaboration with a uh, university, which meant I had three supervisors... (laughs) Three, can you imagine? And there was some history and politics between these supervisors. And I was a young, <laughs> you know, student. All these supervisors were obviously male. They were obviously older than me. So a couple of things happened in that. So one was all of that politics and the conflict in that group fostered that sort of passion into like, oh my God, innovation isn't just having a good idea. It's about how you... You know, like there's all this human stuff that can get in the way. That was that was one, but also because it was an industrial PhD, uh, there was this mandatory course in systems thinking. I think they called it innovation management or something. So, learning about systems thinking. So learning that, and then you had to apply these theories to your own project, and it was it was a real eye opener for me. And what it did was it made me actually quit this PhD because of the new passion. Well, because of all this politics and feeling powerless in in relationship with these supervisors, it was almost it was three projects in one. And I just felt like I didn't know how to navigate that space. And I was very fascinated by this way of looking at, like taking that systems thinking perspective and analyze the project from that sort of lens. And it was also in maternity leave number two. Mm -hmm. So things also happens when you're when you get a long year to, to think about life and to sort of live a completely different life. So I decided not to come back to that, to the PhD. Well, no regrets? Many, many, many regrets. Really? <laughs> yeah, many, yeah. It felt like it was a huge sense of failure. Really? It was very tough. How did you handle that? Did you? I, I did. I went out and I trained myself and I completed a, a marathon. What? To prove to myself that I'm not a quitter. A running marathon? <laughs> running, yeah. Running 42 kilometers. Oh my I, God. <laughs> I'm not a quitter. I can stick to something I can trust. Now we're entering my favorite topic, body-mind. How you threw the body and decided to solve the issues. How did it help? What it did was sort of my mind had overtaken Right. So actually, after that PhD, I worked two years as a, as a consultant engineer in an urban planning company in Copenhagen. And, and then I had a burnout. And that's when I trained for this marathon. Wow. <laughs> it was like my mind was so busy and, and it was like spiraling out of control. 
I was planning how to escape all the time, like escaping this job and escaping this reality and planning this vacation or, you know, this next education that was going to bring me somewhere else or up or, I don't know, some other direction. Until I had, a, for the second time in a winter, had a flu. And I remember it was like this fever washing over me on a Sunday afternoon. And I was so happy. I was like, oh my God, I'm having a fever. I can't go to work tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> welcome this fever. Wow. And I think that's where my husband said, I think maybe this is a burnout. So then I basically quit that job and started yoga the next week for the first time in my life and started running. And that was where I'm like, okay, I'm going to just focus on my physical well-being and just find out who am I and what am I about and be present without having a, a bigger sort of vision other than it felt right. That's amazing. I <laughs> just imagine this physical training, endurance, leaving all this heavy brain work slightly on the side to just process it. Um, if I go a little bit back, um, do you remember before going into the pathway of uh, nonstop learning <laughs> and studying and the university, what were your passions? What were your dreams? Maybe as a teenage girl. Yeah, no, they were, they were often about nature. I think from a very young age, I just felt the magic of that when, you know, so growing up in Denmark, snow was sort of a rare thing, but then going to Norway was like covered and it was white and it was magical. Mm -hmm. And then I actually remember, so elementary school is nine years in Denmark, and then there's a um, optional grade 10. And there were some of my friends, they were going to this other school and doing this grade 10. And part of the program was about going to Norway and skiing and having these adventure experiences. And I wanted to do that. And um, yeah, and my mom flat out told me I wasn't allowed because that would be a waste of my talents. There's no way I should waste a year doing that. So I better get going into the further up and into the educational system. And in a way, I think now, this winter, I feel like I've finally got that year. Yes! <laughs> like all these years later. This has been the year of skiing for me. Yeah. So that was one thing. I think journalism was, a, was the only other thing I also thought about. But the school, the journalism school was not in Copenhagen. It was another smaller city in another part of the country. And I wasn't at that time ready to leave my roots. So so I just sort of like rolled it out. Do you miss Copenhagen? I do. I mean, and, I, and sometimes I don't. I mean, there's, there are definitely certain things I miss, but there are also certain things that I really like about Montreal. The things I love about Montreal that I do not miss uh, in Copenhagen is the diversity of people and the openness of people. And you don't have to defend that you're from somewhere else. There's a curiosity around it. And it sort of just enriches, like we have all these neighborhoods, we have all these restaurants. You know, it's a melting pot of, of traditions. I really like that. I really appreciate that. And I feel any news coming out of Denmark that's about how um, immigrants are treated, it's, you know, makes me ashamed. Mm. So it's more homogeneous uh, as the society? So Denmark is often also upheld as, a, as an example of 
you know, social programs and equality. One of the places where there's the least income inequality, you know, there's no corruption, there's equality between men and women, and the social safety, you know, like it's free to go to university, you actually get paid to go to university. You know, daycares are cheap, there's guaranteed spots in the daycare, there's flexibility in the workplace. I mean, there's so many things and that you take for granted when you grow up there, obviously, right? And then you travel and you realize it's not like that everywhere. And you're like, whoa, whoa, why, why not? Really. But it's also understood that all of this is for Danes. Mm-hmm. So if you are not a Dane, then it doesn't really apply to you. Mm. And this whole notion of when are you a Dane or not a Dane, like there's this word I heard, a fourth generation immigrant. Right? What? Yeah. That's long. Like what is it? Like when do you become a Dane? After a hundred years. <laughs> right. And it and wow. we all know it comes down to skin color. It comes yeah. down to where are you from? Where what what background? Mm-hmm. Like the heritage kinda. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you have a European name? Do you have white skin? Okay. Uh-huh. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the things that I really do not appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that in a kind of colorful, diverse world, it's still possible to achieve certain things which, for example, Danish people benefit from? I would certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that was, of course, and that was part of my motivation also for getting into politics in the first place. Because... The things we want, the things all of us want, right? We want better educated people. We want a greener economy. We want equality between all genders and all people and social programs. Like all the things we want, it always feels like, oh, well, I know that. I know what that's like. I've lived that. I see the solution. And not only I see the solution, I also see the structure that will create the solution. It's like... I know people, for instance, they go to Copenhagen and say, oh, beautiful, and with the bike paths, and everybody bikes, and we want bike paths. I'm like, yeah, well, that's the top of the iceberg. There's a whole reason why there are these bike paths. There's a whole way of working together across, you know, silos that has created that whole network of bike paths, for instance, and that's what we need to create. So, yes, I'm optimistic that, of course, like, it's not a question of being homogeneous. Like, that's not what that is. You know, I think that's too easy an excuse. Mm-hmm. Now that we're getting into this, the topic of um, of politics, I mean, I think there is a really, really strong status quo bias in, I believe, in Canada, and therefore in Quebec, and therefore in Montreal. Like, status quo is so strong that it's incredible the length that people go to to explain to you why things are the way they are and why they have to be the way they are and how complex it will be to change them. Like, yeah, I just don't hear that kind of talk. This is not that present in Denmark. If you see something that's not working, it's almost like you have a civic duty to point it out <laughs> to the right people who will then be very embarrassed, you know, <laughs> to fix it as fast as they can. Mm. Whereas that's here, I sometimes feel like this narrative of complexity is a smokescreen. Mm. So kind of people 
justify in a way that the things are the way they are. It's kind of like we've been fed these narratives that it's complex and it's difficult and it takes so much time and and, 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 and so therefore you know we can't just it's written here or it's this office or it's this and we kind of accept that. Mm-hmm. I think it's something what I read in your articles you published on Medium. I actually really like them because they're perfect length and perfect simplicity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was in um, Montreal traffic is a wicked problem. Mm-hmm. I invite um, listeners to actually find the article. We'll provide some links. It's really, really interesting how you write about how it's complex on so many levels and there's so many actors involved and that it almost feels as unsolvable. Mm-hmm. You know, a very common reaction when things are are complex and there's lots of nuances is to to simplify. Try and make like, a, you know, good and bad or the right versus wrong. Black and white. And black and white, right? So for instance, uh, yeah, so if we're talking about traffic, which is one of my absolute, you know, <laughs> pet topics about Montreal, as I say, there's two things Montrealers can agree on, right? One is that traffic sucks. And the other one is that it's someone else's fault, right? And then we have this tendency to put each other into these like cyclists or, you know, either you're a cyclist or you're, you're a driver. And it's almost like if you're one, you cannot be the other, right? So if you are ever seen on a bike, doesn't matter if you own a car and if you, you know, drive regularly, you, you're just, you're a cyclist. And then you are sort of opposed, you're opposite the drivers and I used to go to some of these um, you know lots of the cycling network in Montreal of advocates and so if you are a cyclist you have to be 100% cyclist you can't also get into a car then you're no longer a pure cyclist <laughs> and then if you're a driver then you must be a climate change denier <laughs> so it's like this very uh, polarized way of looking at it whereas you know when I grew up like Everyone I knew had a bike, but most people also had a car, and you would choose your mode of transport depending on where you were going, what the weather was, what you were bringing. Uh, And sometimes you would, you know, bike to the train station, and then you would take the train, you know. And I think this the the conversation is about converting people. It's always about converting people. We have to get people out of their cars and onto the bikes. And if you are someone who drives... A car, you don't want to be taken out of your car to be put on a bicycle. (laughs) You want to have that choice. Mm -hmm. And what we should talk about instead is converting trips, Mm. not converting people. People do what people do, but we should make it attracting for people to not take their car, but to choose to take their bike instead, for instance. Mm -hmm. As a facilitator, those are the kind of conversations I would love to facilitate because I think there's a lack of understanding between different user groups and I think the, there's a lack of nuance in how we're going about solving uh, traffic issues in Montreal. And again, same thing. It's like, it's so complex, but it's always been like that and it can't be changed. Like our notions about like, we can do whatever we want to do with these with the roads, right? And the road space. But the way we talk about it is as if it's, it's so complex and we, there's nothing we can do and you kind of have to be... And there's a war between drivers and cyclists. Mm-hmm. As if the citizens need some education on how to be a citizen or how to integrate, for example, ways of commuting. 
our politicians need that education too, <laughs> and, our, and our journalists, mm-hmm. and our traffic right. engineers. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all we're all kind of spun into that mm-hmm. narrative. And doesn't matter which role someone is holding, they're still projecting this narrative. So they're still saying it's someone else's fault. Yeah, we can all find someone to blame. Like, why is it? Why does the traffic suck in yeah. Montreal? And then pick your favorite villain and point, you know, point at them. Rather than looking at, well, it seems like we're all swimming in the same water where we have created these narratives around what kind of change is possible and who should change. Where do you start? How do you, how do you even slow this craziness just constantly rushing somewhere and, and then start applying certain changes or techniques or where do you start? Really curious about that. One thing is that because it's so complex, nobody's in charge. And that's that's sort of like that's the whole crux of the of, of this mess, which means who has the legitimacy to even call a process? Who can facilitate? Who can who can hire that facilitator? Who can mandate? Who can do that? when agency is um, is distributed the way that it's distributed. Maybe the city could, maybe a nonprofit could, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a funding agency could. Louise Cole Taylor cannot, like me as, a, as, a, as an individual, don't have that kind of legitimacy. But there are definitely are institutions that have that kind of legitimacy who could then decide to convene a process and invite different stakeholders to come together and to slow down, exactly, to slow down and look at what are the kind of forces that's keeping status quo and what is it we need to do to to get moving. Was that the motivation for you to to try politics? What was behind your decision to go and run for city council? Yeah, definitely traffic and mobility and you know urban planning issues and green transition that was sort of where I wanted to make a difference mm-hmm. but definitely also about how we're going about things in my experience there's a missing space for citizens or for for lots of people to get engaged in the process and when it's so fragmented we end up implementing solutions that work for some but not for for a lot of people because we haven't heard from them. Mm. And the kind of sort of democratic tools we have in our toolbox right now is like protest or or a petition, which is also some form of demand this kind of change, or, you know, or we have um, public consultations. But all of these methods are kind of, they're not creating this kind of rich conversation, this rich dialogue where we're really taking the time to understand what are, what's at stake here and how do we go about change. This whole notion of of how change happens is not being addressed in any of these. So what I want to see is you know new forums where all of the super engaged citizens can come together and have these kinds of conversations because there are lots of people who really want to get involved but who don't know where to go. As if there is no place to even hear each other or start the conversation. Right, so our community, our, our borough has about 170,000 people or something. There's no local newspaper. Yeah, 
NDG in Montreal. Come on. <laughs> right? There's no local newspaper. You go on to the website. You have to be a super citizen to even f- <laughs> understand what's going on at what time. And your website, it's super hostile. It's very difficult to find anything. And once you find something, it's probably some PDF. I remember once I wanted to know this uh, committee that had been working on a, a proposal for a bike path on a road that I live right next to. In order to read that report, I had to download a 1,700-page PDF (laughs) and search for the name of the street. I feel you, because uh, on our corner, there was a rumor that the building is going to be demolished. And they actually recently demolished the building. And I wanted to see the future project, what is going to be there. It took me two hours to find a PDF with like, I don't know, 100 pages and finally find this corner street to see the project. And it's already done. So that's outrageous. Why is there no like posters up on the fence Mm -hmm. sharing like this is what's happening in here to no more click here? Right. Yeah, as if uh, there is a missing link in communication. Oh, yeah. Why is that? Is that just because it's easier, faster to create a change by just like, okay, we're going to demolish this building, build another building. We decided that it's good for everyone. And it's too slow to go and knock on everyone's door and like ask questions. Again, there's a history of why democracy in Montreal is the way it is. And obviously... You and I have not been here from the beginning of times. And uh, um, I mean, there's many, many factors. It's very siloed. You know, it's like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Uh, we have very strong bureaucracy. And that's what we saw uh, where the actual the elected officials may not have as much power as we think they do because it's actually the bureaucrats who are, who are running. There's a lot of corruption happening and maybe there's a lack of competence You'd think in, in 2022, you know, like you look up on some of these web pages and it looks like <laughs> something from the early 90s, right? <laughs> yeah. And like, how is that possible? It's it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And sort of there's a whole accountability question of the administration, what's going on. Again, it's complex. It's power. It comes down to the system we have. And there's a whole history of like democracy in Canada and this whole first past the post. Yeah. Uh, but it created it has a whole bunch of side effects. Right. Part of it, I think, creates a population of, you know, in apathy. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the people are, it's just the system does this to you. Right. I think you'd need to have a lot of courage to even think about going into politics. And you did. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about you as Louis Cole Taylor. How was that for you? How was this experience? So when I first moved in 2009, I didn't have a work permit, mm-hmm. actually. So I was just walking the streets and it was before smartphones. So I bought a little camera and I took a bunch of pictures. You know, now I was here. And then I started to notice things in my local community. Like I noticed the Empress, the theater, this, this burned down, you know, facade in front of the park. Beautiful building, by the way. Striking. Right, yeah. Yeah. And I knocked on the door and said, what's going on here? And so there was a group and can I be part of this group? So little by little, I got involved in different community groups and advocacy groups. And so first it was the Empress, then it was the Cycling Association where I really thought I was going to make a difference here. And then I realized that 
I wasn't going to make much of a difference. As an advocacy group, basically our job or our role was to sort of, you know, fight the politicians and kind of like shame them and like point out their flaws and kind of like keep showing up at, at council meetings and ask these nasty questions and, you know, see if we can get media attention. That whole way of working, I realized that that was just not how I wanted to um, go about it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a partner. I wanted to work with this administration. And so one project I did in this advocacy group was we developed a complete plan for how a bicycle network in NDG should look like. So we called the Bicycle Network 2.0 or something. And we presented to the mayor, Copeland. And I remember my expectation was that we had just landed a gift on his desk and here's our phone number here's here's our email please invite us back and i really believe that we would be invited back to collaborate on this new bicycle network we never heard anything back at all so that was disappointing and you know one thing that's another and and i'm like i'm gonna fast forward a bit Mm -hmm. so i was doing this project called a ulap I had planned with my team, we were going to do a series of workshops based on this method from MIT on the systems thinking. We're going to invite different stakeholders from the mobility system across Montreal and have these conversations. It was all planned. We're all excited this was going to take place. The first workshop was going to happen end of March 2020. (laughs) Boom, bam. And then COVID hit. Oh, no. And then... All of that, just like none of that happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I met Sue Montgomery, who was the mayor at the time and who was running again. Mayor of NDG. Continental NDG. And she was starting a new party. And I was curious about it because I also knew her as a cyclist. And, And I was asking, so what's your political platform? And how are you developing that? And who's doing that? And she basically asked me if I wanted to do that. And... I said yes. And so with a group of people, I was facilitating these conversations after having facilitated this platform process. And then she actually kept asking me if I wanted to run as a city councilor. And I was hesitating at first and hesitating and hesitating. And then I gave myself a deadline and said, okay, I'll give you my answer by this date. And then uh, I said yes. If not me, then who and why not? I may not be your typical kind of politician, uh, but maybe this is what's needed. Yeah, so I made my decision. I was really scared. The whole question of legitimacy and who am I and who am I to represent, and which is, a, I think, a very normal question that anyone basically should, probably should ask themselves. But, you know, it came also like, oh, and I'm not a, you know, I haven't lived here my entire life. And, you know, therefore... and. But anyways, overcame that and uh, started to knock on doors and really, really loved that. I didn't know I was going to love that as much as I did. Mm -hmm. And that's how I met you. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But randomly ringing your doorbell and you came down, remember, and your eyes lit up. (laughs) Yeah, because I didn't have the working permit. (laughs) I was just like, hey, I want to get involved. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that was really awesome. Yeah, knocking on doors was an incredible experience for me. Unfortunately, it was short for me because I was hit by a car as I was biking in Saint-Henri. And because the bike paths was there, like, total... Well, there you go. Yep, yep. 
I am the victim of this <laughs> sitting here. But uh, yeah, going with you and knocking on doors was incredible. Just seeing your neighbors mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. with them. And that was mind-blowing experience. Just knowing who lives next to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hearing them. Kind of slow process too. <laughs> yeah, just knocking on doors, not knowing who was going to open and what state of mind they were in or what kind of political, you know, bend they had and just having a conversation. And I think that's where I was just using all my coaching and facilitation skills of just like listening to people. I also felt that that was a huge public consultation of sorts in a way. Like I learned so much about how how people are thinking and how people are thinking about change. Like what is it people believe needs to happen in order to get what it is that we all want. Yeah, so I really liked that part and I was taking that very slow. I didn't rush through. Like if people wanted to talk, we talked. That's cool. And what was next? Well, then the election came and um, I didn't win. Mm-hmm. And so that created a, you know, a void in terms of like, oh, okay, now I have a lot of time. What do I need to do now? I kind of already knew. I had made that as a plan B knowing it was going to be winter and also knowing that that experience would have changed me in some way and that I wouldn't know in what way until later. Like it wasn't like I was going to wake up the next day after the election. Like, oh, now I know how it changed me. <laughs> <laughs> so you needed to slow down. <laughs> I needed to slow down. And with COVID, with winter, you know, with the snow coming. Lockdown. <laughs> and then one. the lockdown, January was so long oh, and yes. so cold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, uh, so I did. Not a marathon, but I did a ski marathon and went out and just skied and skied and skied and then, yeah, did a 45-kilometer ski marathon. Wow, bravo. (laughs) (laughs) How many marathons have you done in your life? It's actually the third cross-country ski. But there's different kinds of, anyways, so it's the second of 45-kilometer. If I understand correctly, in cross-country skiing, you place your own desirable amount of kilometers? yourself from 12 to like 160 kilometers like and you choose your own level or well so it's because the canadian ski marathon it's an event and they have these sections so you can choose how far you want to go and so i did that in 2020 because it was in february mm-hmm. and then in 21 and 21 the physical event got canceled and so it was a virtual event so you had to do it on your own and then upload your your data basically your strava to prove that you did whatever you category you signed up for. So how many kilometers did you do? So 45 kilometers. Wow. But this year with a lot of hills. Oh. Which is different. Wow. Yeah. So that's a that's a good almost 10 hours of skiing. Did it help you like the whole preparation process to understand how this experience with the election changed you? I would say it hasn't sort of ding come yet. Um, That's what the journaling is for. It's like little by little, you know, it's not like a big, it's like little insights and little insights and little insights and little dots. And I think actually in the beginning, it was a lot of just blocking the whole thing out. I think there was that. There was just like a, uh, not even thinking about it. And then maybe now I'm going to start opening up. You know, you put your face out there, you know, you can't walk around the neighborhood without seeing your face on these enormous posters. <laughs> it's it's intimidating. 
So even though I don't feel I have anything really to be sh- ashamed about, there is a bit of that shame, just like you put your you put yourself out there, right? And so there's a kind of a natural, like, ah, I'm going to wear my sunglasses again, you know, <laughs> like and be anonymous. Because people would start recognizing you on streets and like say hi or... A little bit, not much. I mean, I wasn't... You were everywhere in India, I remember. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I did get recognized, and I did get recognized up north as well. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think after that, it was just like, a, okay, I'm just gonna... I'm just gonna be me and not having to sell myself or to, you know... Did you feel like this printed portraits or like the extension of you and kind of deattaching like from something close to you or something like that? Why was that intimidating? Or It was more like, okay, these are the rules of the game and I'm not going to question though, you know, that's just the way it is. And this is just, you know, I didn't like the picture. It's like, ugh. Oh, come um, on, it was a beautiful picture. Who's going to love a picture of themselves hanging all over? Like, <laughs> I, you know, like, I don't think anyone will. Yeah. Um, it was uh, just, yeah, just accepting that that was part of it. You know, those are the rules of the, you know, and this is what you do because people have to know who you are. Would you do this again? Maybe. Aha, uh-huh, yes, good. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It was definitely an act of courage and i think what we wanted to achieve was courageous what i got disappointed about was really how the system works you know that system thinking is so strong in me but like seeing how few people came out to votes like 30 percent mm. seeing the communication from elections montreal that was so confusing and almost you could call it voter suppression, you know, because it was like this tiny fonts on the other side and it was like these seven pages and if you weren't registered, you it was a very complicated process and you had to show up at this office before this date and a lot of people were not registered and people had to vote in places different from when they normally vote and compared to the federal election that had just taken place a few weeks before, this municipal election was extremely complicated. And for most people, a municipal election is like not as big a deal. So you want to make it very easy. You want to nudge people and you want to make it as easy and, and interesting as possible. Mm-hmm. So I was disappointed in yeah the elections in Montreal, but also the, the role of the media and how the media was portraying the choices that you had to make. Just for instance, that the mayor of Montreal, like they made it look like this presidential race. And then there was this third option when in reality there were like 10 options or something, but we didn't hear about the other candidates. Right. And maybe they weren't as likely to win. And like, again, it comes down to this first past the post, because when you have the first past the post, you just have to really only concentrate on, on, you know, one, two, and maybe three. Right. But it would have been interesting to give them more exposure because maybe they had some great ideas for what should happen in Montreal. Like we're totally as voters, as citizens, we missed out. Yeah. If, you know, seven other people raised their hand and said, I want to be mayor of Montreal, maybe they had something to offer. Right. Um, I do remember when we were knocking on doors, it was almost like spreading the information about the municipal elections mm-hmm. that so many citizens didn't even know what date it was. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of the door knocking was actually about informing people there is an election, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the date, <laughs> and this is how it works, right. basically. Yeah. What's next for you? Maybe not in terms of politics, but just uh, overall, what do you feel like doing? 
og så skisæsen skal den ende soon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go to Danmark for a while this summer, for two to three months. Slow traveling. Yes. <laughs> I have only been for a week or two at a time since I moved here in 2009, so I really look forward to be there for a while and just sort of be there and absorb, you know, and help my daughter set up. Because when I return, we're going to be empty nesters. One thing I'm excited about is going on bike camping trips ah. in Denmark. So actually, you know, pack up everything with tent and sleeping bags and everything on bikes and then go um, not very far. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about slow, we also have to talk about small and local and less. Mm-hmm. If you can only travel on a bicycle, you can't go that far and you can't carry that much. You can't buy that much it sort of limits what you can do but i love that wow for how many days so i think i'm gonna go for probably just a week with my husband and then later a week with my sister i thought you're gonna say like a couple of days a week out there <laughs> yeah that's amazing and then professionally um you know i'm exploring different ideas and taking my time being slow kind of feeling out what might be next You're in the inspiration for me, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I look forward to when, whenever you have time, when you will return and share your experience and your observation about Copenhagen. Yeah, maybe we could continue. I'd love to. And you know what? I also want to thank you for doing this. This is really wonderful. And I'm sure also the listeners, like, doing COVID, these kinds of conversations is what I've been missing the most. That's why it's slowing down podcast because it's important sometimes to give yourself and other people just space to just flow, like let this go. I agree. So thank you, Jana. Thank you, Luis. Bye. Bye. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to Luis's articles that I mentioned earlier. Also, if you enjoy listening to the Slowing Down podcast and want to receive updates from me, your host, consider subscribing to my newsletter on my website, janaslow.com, J-A-N-N-A-S-L-O-W.com. This podcast was recorded and mixed at AudioZ Studios in downtown Montreal, Canada. Visit AudioZ.com for more information. The music is composed by Remy Sili, a.k.a. Klatu. Find his tunes on soundcloud.com slash Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks, everyone, and until the next time.